This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Though there are only a handful of gene therapies on the market today, there is a robust and growing pipeline of these transformative medicines advancing towards the market. In this third part of our four-part gene therapy series, we spoke to Janet Lambert, CEO of the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine, about the state of the gene therapy industry, the challenges developers face in advancing therapies to the market, and emerging pricing approaches to make them accessible to the patients who need them. Janet, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. We're going to talk about gene therapy, how these therapies are changing the landscape for rare diseases, and the challenges developers face in bringing these medicines to patients. Perhaps we can begin with the term gene therapy itself. There are a few types of genetic medicines that are emerging today. How broadly is the term gene therapy applied and and what does it constitute? Genetic medicine is definitely on the rise and there are a lot of different technologies being developed. So the definition of gene therapy is evolving with the science. For my organization, the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine, we tend to say a gene therapy is a treatment that seeks to modify or introduce genes into a patient's body with the goal of durably treating, preventing, or potentially even curing disease. The therapeutic pipeline is large and growing. Can you give us a sense of what it looks like today, how big it is, and and how mature it is? Sure. It's early days in, in gene therapy. But there are more than a sorry, more than a thousand regenerative medicine clinical trials ongoing worldwide. And of those, about 350 are utilizing gene therapy. Clinical trials tend to fall into three phases. Phase one are the are early phase, phase two, mid-phase, and phase three are closer to market, later stage trials. Right now, we've got 35 gene therapy trials in phase three. So although today there are really only a handful of gene therapies on the market, we expect that to change significantly in just the next few years. And I know that the Alliance is is interested in selling gene therapies broadly. Uh, A large portion of that world includes treatments of, of cancers in, in terms of the gene therapy pipeline for rare diseases, 
How sizable is that? And, and what's the range of indications that are in being targeted in development today? Rare diseases make up about 60% of gene therapy clinical trials, and about half of those are in rare cancers. So there's some crossover between cancer and rare disease. Another way to put it, that means there's about 120 clinical trials. Excuse me, that means there's about 120 clinical trials utilizing gene therapy to treat rare diseases outside of the oncology space. In terms of what, what are the indications outside of oncology, we're seeing trials advance in inherited blood disorders, ophthalmology, inherited endocrine and metabolic disorders, and also uh, several in muscular skeletal disorders. A large portion of rare diseases, up to 80%, are monogenic. Only a handful of these diseases have attracted investment from a biopharmaceutical company. What makes a disease particularly attractive to a gene therapy developer? What types of considerations will they make as to whether or not to pursue a particular indication? Good question. I, I think developers consider a number of factors. I mean, first and foremost is really whether they have a good idea, you know, whether they're confident that the therapeutic program that they're considering developing will really have a meaningful effect on the patient population that they're targeting. And often people really like to think about diseases where there's no other available treatment option because, you know, often these are these are really devastating diseases. Often they're diseases of childhood. And it's a very, very, you know, compelling uh, scenario to feel like you could develop a therapy that could could help treat or even cure uh, these patients. I think another factor that folks consider is is the the prevalent versus incident patient population. So you might have a rare disease, only a a small number of new patients every year, but there may be a pretty large population of existing. Uh, patients with that disease that you could you could treat with your your therapy, and then finally, I think um, developers consider whether the platform that they might be developing to address one monogenic disease might in fact be be able to treat other indications with a, a limited number of changes or or modifications. So it may be that learning and investment made to target one disease or indication actually could set the stage for that same company to treat other diseases. Are there times when a, a monogenic condition may not be a good candidate for gene therapy from a biomedical point of view? Yes. Um, I, I think often slower or later onset indications make gene therapy a good uh, a good target. In some cases, when disease progression is severe and occurs in infants, cells or organs can already be irreparably damaged by the time a diagnosis is received and a therapy can be administered. Gene therapies may be able to halt progression but not repair the damage already done. This is why expanded newborn screening could become very important as we develop treatments for a greater number of these diseases. 
there are sometimes other um, details that could affect whether uh, an indication is is right for gene therapy that include things like how how large is the gene um, that needs to be repaired. This is an issue with um, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, for example. There are a lot of gene therapies being developed to try to address Duchenne's, but it, Duchenne's has a particular challenge because the gene involved is a big gene, and it means that delivering that gene and developing a system, a package, to deliver that gene into the appropriate cells is more challenging than when the the gene modification or the whole gene that needs repair is relatively smaller. What can patient groups do to improve the odds that a gene therapy developer would be interested in pursuing their disease? What kind of research would they fund or biosamples would they want to gather or, or data would it be best to accumulate? We work with a lot of patient groups and, and there's not one uh, particular approach that that uh, works. There are many different approaches, but I'd say there are some commonalities among them. Primarily what patient groups can do to interest researchers or commercial firms in trying to develop a therapy to address their indication is to, is to build kind of some initial data uh, that helps expedite the research process. So that can take a couple of different forms. Often it starts with building a registry, just a, a list of, of uh, patients who are affected by a given disease. In the case of rare diseases, it, that can be really challenging for a researcher to find uh, affected patients. And if a patient group can, can do that legwork for the researcher and have a, a, a roster of the affected community, that can help a lot. The next step is often to create um, what's called a natural history study, which is a way of um, capturing what is the normal progression of a patient with this indication. What's their experience without treatment? Having a clear record of that is also helpful to a researcher because then, of course, it makes it easier to compare um, the experience of a patient on an experimental therapy versus an untreated patient. So often patient groups do do those two things. And by doing so, um, they can help attract researchers to their cause. It may, you know, go without saying, but another thing patient groups often do is that they they frankly collect resources and they fund research in their particular area of concern. People may tend to oversimplify gene therapies. There, there's a faulty gene. You stick a piece of code to correct that in a vector, and boom, all is good. What makes gene therapy challenging to get to work right? One challenge is the vector itself. So that process of sticking a piece of code to correct uh, a faulty gene into a vector and getting it inside the body in the right place is complicated. It's really complicated. And the package or the code doesn't always get where you want it to go. It doesn't always infect enough of the target cells. It might not result in sustained function or gene expression all of the time. Plus, they're hard to make. Um, the manufacturing process for vectors is something a lot of folks are working on to try to make it faster, easier, cheaper, and more efficient. 
we're still learning a lot about the fundamental biology here. We, we tend to think of the gene being the customized portion of gene therapy, but how customized does the vector have to be to the indication? Uh, often it has to be quite customized. Um, the vector design itself will determine things like which cell types or tissues are targeted, what's the duration of the gene expression, and, and those requirements will vary by disease, and therefore the vector will vary by disease. Um, there definitely are vectors that can and are used for multiple different diseases, but there's no such thing yet as a universal vector. One of the bottlenecks of gene therapy has been a lack of vector manufacturing capacity. There's been a, a spate of projects announced over the past year or so, but to what extent does capacity continue to be a problem? Uh, it's definitely still an issue. Um, I would say, though, that the bigger issue is, is still probably optimization of the vector manufacturing process, which, as I, I mentioned, is still pretty inefficient. Gene therapies still have a long way to go on this front, and there's no reason to believe that it's a problem we can't solve. Um, but but there's some definitely some work to do. We've noticed in in um, our sector that building manufacturing capacity is happening much, much earlier uh, in developing gene therapy companies than in traditional uh, drug development, where a company often wouldn't start worrying about its manufacturing capacity until its trials are in phase three. In gene therapies, you have very, very young companies using early investment dollars to build out manufacturing capacity. And I think we'll continue to see that. The challenges for a gene therapy developer doesn't end once they win market approval. Regulators require up to 15 years of long-term follow-up studies. How much of a burden is this on companies and how are they tackling this? This is a this is a real challenge for our sector. There's definitely a need to establish the appropriate infrastructure to facilitate long-term follow-up for these therapies. And what we see is that there are multiple parties often trying to track and who have a desire for information over time from patients, right? So we talked about patient groups themselves who are collecting registries and natural history studies. So they have a data collection process where they're looking often for information from their patient group and their community. Manufacturers are interested in long-term data to study the efficacy of their therapies. The regulatory agencies are interested in long-term data to fulfill their mission. And payers are interested in this data for a whole variety of, of reasons to determine, their, come to their own conclusions about value, to compare one treatment center to another. And yet, you know, there are only, in many of these indications, there's only so many patients and they only want to fill out so many forms. So this issue of how to manage uh, evidence development in a way that's um, can serve these various needs, um, but not be too burdensome on clinicians and patients is, 
is a real challenge and how to use not just electronic health records and claims data, but real world evidence that is sort of patient reported outcomes and patient information. That's really going to be integral to collecting meaningful evidence for ATMP's use and effectiveness. At least one reason that regulators would like these long-term follow-ups is to understand the durability of these therapies. Where are we in terms of understanding how lasting the effects of gene therapies will be? And, and do you think we can speak of these as cures? We're still in the really early days of understanding the durability of these products. But that said, the initial data is really very promising. And there are certainly some therapies that have been studied for a long time whose durability is really, really impressive. So we have reason to be optimistic, but we have, to your point, still a limited amount of data and we need to continue to collect it in order to be able to really um, confirm the durability that we're anticipating because of early studies and animal models and other things. We're excited about what's coming, but there still needs to be some data collection there. One of the big questions overhanging this industry is pricing and pricing models. We've seen some efforts to develop innovative pricing models. There has been some activity around new payment models to address the cost issue. Where do you see us in terms of the evolution of these approaches? And, and have you seen anything you think points to the path forward? These therapies can provide substantial cost savings to patients and to healthcare systems in the long run. A study published by the Marwood Institute with, with support from ARM earlier this year looked at sickle cell disease, hemophilia, and multiple myeloma and found that a durable cell or gene therapy for these indications could provide cost savings of 18 to 30% in just a 10-year time frame. However, there's no question that these therapies have higher upfront costs and it can be difficult for payers to absorb those costs. So establishing these kind of innovative value-based financing models can really be important to offsetting these costs and to ensuring that patient access is really provided. I think we've started to see um, a, a significant interest on the part of developers and payers in outcome-based arrangements where a payer can be reimbursed, uh, excuse me, a manufacturer would be reimbursed um, only if the therapy continues to be effective and to meet some pre-established clinical endpoints in the patient. If the patient doesn't respond to the therapy, if the therapy doesn't prove to be as durable as anticipated, then uh, payment for that therapy can stop. That's sometimes combined with or um, with uh, what's called an annuity payment, which is um, uh, a payment where simply it's it's spread over some uh, period of years so that the system doesn't have to ingest the cost all up front and, and realize the benefit over time, but can realize both the benefit and the cost over a period of time. We're likely heading to a, a new public policy debate around the future of healthcare in the United States, as well as the pricing of therapies. 
gene therapies are new and I suspect poorly understood by the public at large and even policymakers. What's the challenge for the industry and, and how are you addressing that? The key challenge is really about differentiating these therapies from traditional pharmaceuticals because they're fundamentally different. They're different because they are durable and they can not only transform the lives of many seriously ill patients, but they can also provide savings in the medium and long term compared to the standard of care in many cases. So patients and their caregivers can experience significant indirect cost savings because there's no longer grappling with a serious debilitating disease. Also, at this point in time, we're talking about a relatively small group of patients. The majority of the indications these therapies are targeting right now are rare diseases and rare cancers. And so for many of these patients, there are no other treatment options available. So for us, it is important that we do everything we can to educate policymakers and other stakeholders in the sector. And it's a focus of the work that ARM does along with our 360 plus member organizations. We're committed to working with regulators and payers and leg legislators to help them understand what the barriers to patient access to these therapies are and to help work out solutions that work for both the payer community and healthcare systems and and uh, the public side of the of the equation, as well as uh, benefit the, the patients who are receiving these therapies. Janet Lambert, CEO of the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine. Janet, thanks so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.